Dear friends, here we are. Welcome along to Call of the Wild, the podcast from WWF with yours truly, Kels Bellman. This is the place where I find out about the environmental threats to our planet and more importantly, that age-old question, what can we do to help? Now listen, the absolute joy of talking into a delicious meal, sat around the table, connecting with old and new friends, flowing conversation, it arguably is one of life's greatest pleasures. But most of us are not aware of the reality that the food we eat and how it's produced, it's having a massive impact on our planet. In the UK and around the world, the food and farming industry's reliance on intensive practices is destroying habitats, decimating species, ecosystems, and of course, accelerating climate change. And in fact, research shows we're going to have to reduce the amount of meat and dairy we eat by 50% to meet our carbon goals by 2050. <laughs> yeah, 50%. The food we eat, it doesn't need to cost the earth. And in today's episode, we're going to be exploring the amazing work being done to produce our food more sustainably. And what can we all do to reduce the impact our food is having on the planet while eating deliciously along the way? Everyone's a winner. I'll be joined by Groove Armada's Andy Cato to hear about his journey falling in love with sustainable farming and his brilliant company Wild Farmed. For a while I had this slightly odd life where I was still still DJing and I had a, a copy of John Seymour's Guide to Self-Sufficiency <laughs> in the record box. And I'm going to be speaking with organic food pioneers Guy and Geeti Singh Watson about the importance of growing veg in harmony with nature and running the world's first organic pub. You need to think about the impact of absolutely everything you're doing. And food is so essential. As if that wasn't enough, we do spoil you here on Call of the Wild. We're going to hear from someone who's been protecting gorillas in their home of the Democratic Republic of the Congo by supporting community food projects. All right then, let's begin. First up, it can seem like there's nothing more natural than planting a seed, growing a plant chowing down on the fruits of your labour and you may know because I've mentioned it a fair few times I have an allotment with some friends and I love it and I can honestly say there is no greater feeling than having that meal that is made up of all the food you've grown always tastes that little bit better honestly it does but the question is how has growing our food become such a big source of emissions in the modern world when we think of a farm, we might picture sunshine, butterflies, wheat fields and birds singing in neighbouring trees. And to some extent, that's what farming used to look like. But the reality is much of modern farming has moved very far away from the storybook ideal. Agriculture is now responsible for 10% of total greenhouse gas emissions in the UK, as well as substantial biodiversity and habitat loss. But how? It starts with preparing the ground. We might not realise it, but the soil under our feet contains an amazing array of microbes like bacteria and fungi, as well as critters like earthworms and other tiny insects which act to keep the soil naturally healthy. But when we turn over the soil by ploughing, whether it's a field already used for crops or an ancient peatland, that complex ecosystem is disturbed and carbon that was previously being stored is released. This has contributed to the UK being one of the most nature-depleted countries on Earth. There's more. 
Pressures on farmers to deliver more food for less cost has led to the widespread adoption of artificial fertilisers. Nitrogen-rich fertilisers help plants grow, but they also get converted to nitrate by bacteria in the soil. Rain flushes this nitrate into waterways, polluting streams and rivers and causing massive changes to the ecosystem of marine plants and animals that call them home. These fertilisers also go through a chemical process called oxidation, ending up lost in the air as nitrous oxide, which hangs out in the atmosphere, acting as a greenhouse gas. Another big factor is rearing livestock, especially when complex habitats like the Amazon rainforest are destroyed to intensively grow crops like soy for animal feed. Ultimately, the environmental harm caused by our food system is a global problem. When the government allows imports of vegetables or meat produced using unsustainable practices, we're responsible for those emissions too, which is why we need strong legislation to ensure that the food on our tables is being sourced in line with climate goals. Because although it's 10% in the UK, Globally, about 29% of human-made greenhouse gas emissions comes from how we produce and distribute our food. But it doesn't have to be this way. We can move towards a future of food production that cuts carbon emissions, works in harmony with nature, and promotes happy wildlife and healthy ecosystems, while also properly supporting farmers both home and abroad to grow enough food to feed us all. So, that's a quick guide to just some of the ways modern agriculture is causing harm to nature and our planet. But once again, the beautiful thing is, as with all these systems, there are alternative ways in which we can be operating that's not going to have such dire consequences to our planet and to these ecosystems which we all rely on. But how can we grow our food and eat more sustainably? Well, to answer that question, I turn to food pioneers and organic veg experts Guy and Geeti Singh Watson. Now, Guy started growing organic veg back in 1987, so safe to say this is a man who is well ahead of the curve. He has gone from delivering it out the back of his car to about 30 friends to founding a veg box company called Riverford that delivers to almost 100,000 households a week. He's also a WWF ambassador, and Geeti is an ethical restaurateur, as she told me. When I started working in restaurants, which I absolutely loved, I was so shocked and disillusioned by the lack of thought into any form of environmentalism from the food procurement to, you know, how they were dealing with waste. So I quickly decided that I knew there was a market out there for people like me who wanted to eat out but feel they were having not a detrimental impact on the environment, but preferably a positive impact. So in 98, I opened the first organic pub in the world. And I think I still probably just about have the only really organic pub in the world. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no silly question on this podcast. So one of the first things, and maybe Guy, I'll, I'll put this to you, just for those who might not know, because we hear it a lot. Can you actually tell us what is it to have an organic vegetable? Like when we say this is organic, what does that mean? Well, the simplest way of defining it is quite a negative way, which is saying, you know, it's food that's grown without the use of uh, synthetic pesticides and fertilisers. But it's much more than that, really. It's about it's food that's grown with a view to working in partnership with nature rather than wanting to just suppress nature. 
and put something else in its place. And to work in partnership, you really have to understand your partner. So to be a good organic farmer, I think you really have to be interested in nature and you have to be an ecologist, really. You know, we have become so divorced from the seasons. And I think the main driver of that is the main retailing model that we have in the West, which is supermarket. Feels like you're going into a hospital. It's sort of aseptic. You know, it's um, has no relationship to the outside, to to nature. And in that environment, you forget what whether it's February and you know tomatoes are as out of season as they could be. And so I think that divorcing of of you know what happens in the kitchen from what's happening in the fields, you yeah. know, has really driven the loss of seasonality, which has driven so much of the environmental impact of our food. And and so where people fail to make a connection between what they're eating and and its environmental impact. As long as you've thought about it and you're perfectly conscious about that thing that you're doing, you know, you need to think about the impact of absolutely everything you're doing. Mm -hmm. And food is so essential to this. And what I want to try and do in the pubs is teach people that it can be as delicious. You just change a few things and you can really change the impact you're having on the planet. There's a massive conversation, of course, around the whole agricultural industry. And from my, you know, very basic and limited understanding, you know, there are definitely parts of it that work. And I think some parts of it that don't work. Do you think there is more that can be done at an agricultural level? Agriculture is contributing depending on what you measure, where and what measurements you use, somewhere between 10 and even some people claim as much as 50% of global emissions and probably more in terms of biodiversity loss. So it's huge. Can we do more to produce the food we need with less impact? Most definitely. You know, some of the most inspiring agriculture I've seen has been with some small-scale farmers in Uganda who have incredibly complex farms, you know, with growing, you know, 50 different crops all in close, you know, intimate association with each other, with each other you know, what plants they can grow to repel certain insects. Those farmers, the best of them, are real ecologists. What would be the things then that we we could be looking for, would hope to see if we wanted to try and maybe shift the agricultural industry here in the UK to maybe represent and embody more, like you say, those farmers in Uganda? Well, more diversity, which is difficult when, you know, only somewhere around about 0.6% of GDP actually goes back to farmers, which sort of implies one farmer has to feed almost 200 people. You know, it is inevitably going to require a lot of mechanisation and mechanisation pushes us towards sort of monocrops and scale. So that is a challenge. But I think with the, you know, new technologies, if we were to use that intelligently, we could get much more diversity back in the countryside. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got to admit, as a bit of a diehard organic farmer of 35 years, that the main problem environmentally with organic farming is the excessive cultivation of the soil. You know, in order to grow an annual crop, you know, wheat, rice, potatoes, you know, vegetables, you know, you have to get a seed bed and that involves, you know, removing all the vegetation. Traditionally, that would have been ploughing, creating a seed bed. And that is just a complete anathema to nature. If you go out into the wild, that bare soil happens, you know, once in a couple of hundred years when a tree falls over or a riverbank er erodes. You know, it's like 0 0.0 something of a percent of our habitat. And we have made it the basis of all modern agriculture. And that is the problem. You know, that's why we have soil erosion. That's why we have polluted rivers. Mm. And, uh, you know, we have to find a way of farming better. And traditional farming involves ploughing. And, you know, with seven going on 11 billion people on the planet, you know, just being traditional is not good enough. We, we have to use our newer, better understanding of soil ecology 
and ecology generally to find ways of growing food with less soil disturbance. And, and that should mean looking for perennial crops rather than annual crops. For those who might not know listening, when you talk about a perennial crop and an annual crop, what are the differences? What are those? A perennial plant is one that's there all the time. I mean, you know, a tree which generates nuts or fruits every year from the same tree. But it doesn't, the key is that it doesn't involve cultivating the soil and creating a seedbed, whereas an annual crop has to be grown from a seed or a tuber every year and requires, you know, decimating the ground cover in order to remove any competition. Mm. Actually, I think seasonality is the most important aspect of it. If we stopped expecting constant access to all year round produce, we'd reduce that global market very quickly. But more importantly, we'd enjoy food more. I mean, you know, if you just have peppers in summer, they're they're heaven because you've been waiting (laughs) for them all year. It's just inconsistent with 11 billion people living sustainably on this planet. You know, our choice, you know, has to be between things which are sustainable, not between tomatoes in Waitrose and tomatoes in Sainsbury's, you know, which will And I've demonstrated it through my businesses. So, you know, when I opened the Duke nearly 30 years ago, there were no mixers, for example. So you couldn't get a gin and tonic. So I sold gin and plum juice. I mean, people would come in and ask for a gin and tonic. And we would say, we don't do it because you can only buy Schweppes and we don't buy Schweppes. So therefore, here's gin and plum juice. Mostly people were really into it. There's something that comes up and something I'm always quite passionate about bringing up is, of course, you know, to try and make the right decision and conscious decision at times is is sometimes easier for some people than it is for others. You know, I, I always come back to where, you know, certain places where I'm from and I've got friends in Manchester, they really maybe can't afford to maybe make that decision or, or get the organic piece of fruit. Just uh, in your opinion, you know, how, how can we try and make it easier to, to access for people? Because I'm sure there'll be people listening, I really want to do this, but I physically can't afford to make those decisions. You know, what, what sort of things could they maybe be looking to do or, or try, if anything? Well, eat less meat and animal products, be it dairy and eggs as well, would be the, the first thing you could do, you know, massively and reduce the, the impact, environmental mm-hmm. impact of, of what you're eating. But I, I think it's really, really important that those people who do have the wealth, you know, who are fortunate enough to be able to make choices, that they do make those choices, actually. And that drives the market and it drives the change because generally the way things work more is sold the prices come down and then it becomes probably more affordable and it's imperative that the people who have that money use their choices in a more responsible way thank you so much to the wonderful guy and Giti, and hopefully you feel a little bit inspired as well by what they were saying as we've been hearing on this episode whether we're eating or cooking from scratch The food we eat is having a big impact on the planet, including vital habitats and the species around the world that we all know and love. But here in the UK, farmland birds like the grey partridge, tree sparrow and turtle dove have each declined by at least 90% in the last 50 years due to the changing agricultural landscape. We've also had the loss of hedgerows and flower meadows. We've lost them because of intensive farming, which has then meant fewer habitats for our bees and pollinators, which then has a knock-on effect for other species too, because as we know, everything is linked. Food production is the biggest cause of deforestation. As you may remember, we learn all about that on season one. Them two words that we hear everywhere, palm oil, well, that is exactly at the heart of the problem. You might remember the story about the orangutans. Their numbers have been devastated by the clearing of tropical forests for reasons that actually 
don't need to exist. There was a fact on palm oil as well. It's quite startling. It exists in over 50% of consumer products found on supermarket shelves. Now, if you want to know one of the solutions to that, well, it is to move to sustainably grown palm oil. If you want to know more about that, season one is the place to go. There is another great ape that sadly is in trouble, and that ape is the critically endangered eastern lowland gorilla. Also known as Grower's Gorilla, they are the largest of the four gorilla subspecies standing up to five and a half feet tall and weighing up to 440 pounds. They are quite the beast. They are native to the lowland tropical rainforest in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And I think scientists estimate that the population has gone down by more than 50% since the mid-1990s. Sadly, some estimates suggest there are only 3,800 remaining. One of the biggest threats they faced, as with a lot of big species, is poaching. I mean, even in the protected Kauzi Biega National Park, gorillas there and their infants get caught up in snares, ending up injured or sadly even dying. John Kahekwa has dedicated his life to protecting the gorillas in the park, working tirelessly to grow their numbers from a low of 130 in the year 2000 to 163 members today by founding projects to prevent poaching and destruction of their forest home. I was born in Bukavu, Democratic Republic of Congo, near the Kahuzibiega National Park. We have the eastern lowland gorillas. They are the more threatened subspecies of the four subspecies of gorillas. First of all, I was recruited as a gorilla guide. So I went always in the forest with leading the tourists to see the gorillas. And uh, I recorded two different events, the good one and the bad one. The good is that when I led the tourists to see gorillas, young youngsters of gorillas gave us a good fun and pleased a lot to my visitors. The bad events, was that every time all the young babies who were clapping for us, uh, chest beating for us, I was seeing them carrying wires, you know, snares. So I was very shocked. And uh, I noticed that the communities which live around, they rely on a bush meat. When I went to them, they said, empty stomachs have no ears. And I kept that sentence in my mind. In 1992, I had created the Pole Pole Foundation, which has two main missions. The first is to take care of the gorillas through assisting the rangers uh, when they are in a patrol. And the second one is to go through the communities to fight against the empty stomachs, trying to fill them through sustainable development. We have lots of projects. I have seen a severe malnutrition among these communities. I was thinking that we could uh, initiate the spirulina, which is a superfood. We grow the spirulina in a pond and we harvest every day. We started with 20 children. And from 20 children in 2018, we are at 200 children nowadays, which are depending on this food. Former women who were arrested inside the park some of them, they plant trees every season for Poly Poly Foundation in different villages. We are beyond 4 million trees already. And uh, among sustainable solutions, becoming vegan or vegetarian to protect our remaining population of gorillas. First of all, I mobilized my family members. 52 
families, including mine, have become vegan. And the more our gorillas can reproduce more without any human pressure in the future, really the population of gorillas here can improve because the number of the gorillas today in the highland side of Cahuzbiega National Park, it's under 200 members. But the communities which surround this area goes over 1 million people already. 1 million vice 200. Thank you so much to John Kahakwa from the Pole Pole Foundation and is a shining example of what just one person can do. Now, John mentioned there his vegan club, love that, which is one way to cut down on the greenhouse gas emissions from your food. And there are other simple changes you can make to your diet that will have a positive impact. A few examples of those things are from eating a wider range of foods. That is so good for your health and great for the planet too. Because, I mean, globally, 75% of the global food supply comes from only 12 plants and 5 animal species. The intensive farming of those same crops is bad for ecosystems and the soil. So growing and eating a broad range of nutrient-dense plants is so much better for our health and for the health of the soil. And plus, it makes our food systems more resilient. So you see just one small change, the ripple effect of positive impacts that can have. And a word on becoming vegan from myself for what it's worth. I think at times we get too bogged down with feeling we have to go fully vegan and we lose out on all these things that we love to taste and smell and eat. But for me, that's not the point. If you can go full vegan, great. But what I sometimes say to friends is just reducing your meat and dairy impact and maybe having those one or two less meals a week. If we all did that, that would have the massive impact we're having and it doesn't seem as overwhelming to be asking people to change everything about the lifestyle that they love. WWF and Noor have written up a list of 50 foods for a healthier planet. So you could try swapping out white rice with wild rice, which actually isn't rice at all. It's actually the seeds from a semi-aquatic grass that grows in the wild in the North American lakes and rivers. Or maybe you could see if you can find some orange tomatoes. They're a little bit sweeter than the red variety and they contain up to twice as much vitamin A, which is great for your immune system. And they also contain folate, which is needed to make new red blood cells. See, we're not just an environmental podcast. We cover all the bases here on Call of the Wild. And if you're thinking, well, what about if I want to get some protein in, Cal, for all you avid gym goers out there? Well, guess what? Fill up your plate with beans and pulses like black turtle beans and cowpeas and lentils. And that is how you can get your protein fill. I found actually online, if you search for WWS Future 50 Foods, there's loads of other planet-friendly ingredients that you might not be aware of, like grains, like spelt and quinoa, and so many others in all the different food categories. It's a great way in which you can spice up some dishes and maybe find a way of doing different things, which is going to be better for you and for the planet. I'm now joined by a very special guest, someone I've been very much looking forward to having on the podcast, Andy Cato. Andy is one half of electronic duo Groove Armada, who I adore. You may know some of their famous tunes like I See You Baby and At The River, which, side note, is one of my all-time favourite tunes, a sunset classic. Now, he's gone and turned his creative talents to creative farming. I know, he's ditched the decks for digging and making massive strides with his company, Wild Farmed. 
there's a journalist who's got a lot to answer for. I, I was a musician most of my life. I was on the way back from a gig and I picked up this article, pretty random, but I was interested. In, it was brilliantly written and it was about um, industrial food production or today's food production. And it ended with this line which said, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it. Wow. Which was quite provocative and it really stuck in my head. And so that led me to decide I was going to start growing veg for the family. That's how all this adventure started. And I'd never planted a seed or even a daffodil bulb or anything, <laughs> you know. So it was a bit of a learning curve. For a while, I had this slightly odd life where I was still still DJing and I had a, a copy of John Seymour's Guide to Self-Sufficiency <laughs> in the record box. And, um, yeah, just, just trying to get it get it going. And, you know, it didn't work. And then I understood more. And I just went down a rabbit hole of soil and biodiversity. And you just become aware of this thing, soil, which is the only thing that can turn death into life. And we've knocked it around to within an inch of its life. And if we want to have a future, we need to sort it out. Anyway, so the vegetable thing then got me fascinated with all that. I then said to my incredibly supportive wife, listen, I want to try and do this at scale. Uh, I sold my publishing rights, bought a farm. There's a whole story in there. But it was basically that farm purchase was hopelessly naive. And I, I bought a farm which was heavily degraded, like most of our farms are. And started trying to just kind of form farm organically on this land, which was which was totally knackered. And it, and it broke me. And sort of three years in that, the kind of game was up. Where it ended up was we were growing crops in this slightly novel way surrounded by perennial plants. And we were making flour and bread and cooking bulk bread for schools. Uh, but then when Ed and George came to the farm, a co-founders of Wild Farmed, and, you, and we zoomed out from our little farm, which is a sort of regenerative success story, if you like, mm-hmm. you just realize that all around you is on the road to desertification. Yeah. And there are so many cultural and financial barriers to change for those farmers that the wild farm came from the feeling of like, this is all great what we've got going here. And it's been a hard road to get to this point, but actually we need to move the dial a lot quicker. Yeah, massively. And and I'll, I'll jump in there. George, who you mentioned, George Lamb, is of course one of the co-founders. He said, "Wow, farms." You might recognise him from E4 Music. He did Big Brother, Little Brother. So did he? He approach you then, kind of because he had a similar interest. How did you two become a duo? Uh, our, our eyes met across the crowd in the room. Actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> they actually did. I mean, we, we were at a, we we're in a beta, at a party. You know, one of those parties where it's like overly cool. And uh, all the blokes are in, in black T-shirts and they've all got yeah. tats. <laughs> and then there was me and George. And um, and he was quite tall and I was quite tall. And so we clocked each other and I thought he looks like much more fun than anyone else in this place. So um, we ended up talking and, and he had been on this kind of like world tour in search for meaning. Yeah. And he hadn't found a lot, but I think he had quite a good time. <laughs> and he's back in, <laughs> he was <laughs> back in Ibiza again. And so I said a bit about what I'd been doing and um, it just really resonated. In fact, as he did, all my mates who came out and it's like, looked in the vegetable patch or came to the farm fields or whatever, you just gravitate towards it. Mm. You're like, you're like, what can I do? Can I help? What's this? What's that? You know, despite all of our technological layers, this pull of the earth is still there. Yeah. And, and that's what got George on board and uh, he gave up a nice life on telly for a much more difficult life, persuading people to buy the right kind of flower. But he found that meaning. I love that. You can go yeah. with a Machu Picchu with a shaman, but really when it all comes down to it, you'll find the meaning of life in the soil. Well, we're going to put that over the wild farm door, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, talk to us about then kind of the techniques that you do use and how your farming techniques work. Basically, my feeling is that 
the real elephant in the room is, is the monoculture. In other words, the idea of growing one type of plant in one area. Because if you go out for a walk in nature anywhere in the world, you'll never see that. Nature always uses diversity. And so the particular thing about the wild farm approach is to, to bring diversity back into the fields, not just in flower margins around the edges, but into the fields. So plant the wheat or the, whatever the crop is uh, alongside plants from different families to try and create uh, an ecosystem which is close to natural as possible. And if you do that, you don't have any of these problems for which you've had to use chemicals in the past. And once you started to see that technique in all its glory after it kind of been set into place, were you surprised with actually the positive impact that it was having and how quickly nature did bounce back? Well, I mean, in terms of the effect on biodiversity uh, from replacing a single type of plant with different plant families in the field is just huge and immediate. Uh, I mean, as soon as you create that opportunity of of different habitats within the same field, it will immediately get colonised because nature doesn't leave holes, yeah. habitable holes for very long. You know, so that was that was incredible. The speed, the speed at which that happened. The other interesting thing about it is because I ended up milling the grains that I was growing, turning to flour and eventually turning into bread. Food from biodiverse systems tastes great yeah. because ultimately, taste is all the minerals and trace elements that are lacking from plants that are spoon-fed with, with chemicals. Ah, nice. And yeah, I mean, we could, we could stay on all day and, and, the, and the grower in me is, is really wanting to pick your brain, but that'll maybe be a conversation to be had over a pint because I, <laughs> I also, I find myself at times I start speaking in general kind of rooms about soil quality and kind of getting into, you know, how you, what are you companion planting with? And I'm like, very aware if you're not into it. <laughs> if you talk about Korean natural farming or the no dig, um, that'll bring me to my next question, which of course then is around supermarkets. Do you also think that supermarkets have a role to play? Oh, we, we, we do. You know, I mean, I think, you know, we've got like an internal phrase, uh, which is that we're on the long road to Greg's. Uh, and um, and uh, the, 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 the reason is that, um, like, you know, what I was doing in France was small scale, artisanal, local, regenerative, and that's great. You know, and there are hundreds of examples of that in the UK and around, well, thousands around the world. And yeah. if the whole countryside was divided up into those kind of farms, then that would be great. But the reality is it isn't. Mm-hmm. And we haven't got much time left. So uh, our take on it is that we've got to work within the existing structures of land ownership, distribution, supply chains. You can argue against all of it, but it's mm-hmm. where we are. And we've got, yeah. and we've got 10 years. How do you sustain your energy and your commitment to it? And you can imagine it can feel like you're banging your head against the brick wall when it's such an obvious problem we face. And I think everyone feels this in the, the climate environmental space. I wondered how do you keep that faith and keep the belief and, and, and the energy to drive on? Yeah, I mean, there, are, there have been a few days recently where it feels like I've someone's super glued my legs to the floor and you have to sort of drag yourself around a bit. <laughs> you know, so there's been, it's, you know, I've had a, a lot of failures over the years and uh, and they don't stop just because you've been doing it for a while. And sometimes, you you know, it can be hard because the, the, the bigger this gets, the more people looking at you, the more people, certain people have a go at you, all this stuff. So <laughs> the sort of pressure cooker um, builds up a bit. So when things go wrong, you feel it even more keenly than you did before. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, fundamentally it's a combination of those two things it's like actually if we don't sort this out there's no plan b and so i really want to spend the rest of my days as an active adult trying yeah maybe not always succeeding but trying and and the other part of it is that 
it's just endlessly fascinating, you know. Yeah. So once you get once you get back up off the floor, and uh, you're like, right, and it's just addictive, you know. So it's it's such a it's such a deep deep subject that um, it's always got more to give. And I should mention as well for people listening, you the proof is in the pudding because you've had the equivalent of a knighthood for services to agriculture in France. I mean, that must have also been a moment where you're like, yeah. <laughs> But you, you have, and that, that must have felt a very proud moment for yourself as well. I mean, you know, as you say, the ups and downs, that must have been kind of another another kind of key milestone, yeah. No, it was, yeah. No, that was, I mean, it was also absolutely surreal, you know, <laughs> finding yourself in the in the French Ministry of Agriculture uh, with this, yeah, uh, with mum and dad looking on, you know, uh, and all that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, it is, I don't definitely don't take it lightly. I don't know if any, any other English people have ever had that, so... Um, uh, it's, 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 it's a great thing, but ultimately all those sort of gongs and stuff is great, but what matters is how quickly we can turn our fields around. What a cool dude. How brilliant is that? That was Andy Cato and all the love and appreciation to him. And I also want to say a massive thank you to my dear friend Fern Cotton because it was her that recommended we get him on the podcast and she could not have been more right. He was the perfect fit. Absolutely love that. That is it for another month, my friends. And as always, I really hope you've enjoyed the listen as much as I have had creating this episode for you and hope you feel inspired and you've got some things that you can take away to bring into your own lives and your own routines. A huge thank you to all our guests that have joined me on this episode. We had Guy Ngiti Singh Waxon, Andy Cato and John Kahekwa. What a lineup, by the way. In our next episode of this series, we're going to be talking about our phones and laptops to examine the double-edged sword of technology in the climate crisis. Also very aware, quite ironic, that we're probably all listening to this on some form of technological device. We're going to be talking about amazing satellites that let us track conservation efforts to then the damage that mining for critical components can have on wildlife. And friends, come on. You know the drill by now. There is a bonus episode coming out in two weeks' time, which will feature more of Andy, which we couldn't fit into this episode. Call of the Wild is a Fresh Air production for WWF. Subscribe or follow now for free so that you don't miss an episode, and please do, because it makes a big old difference to this podcast. The Wild is calling. It's time to act.